For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good evening. This is a three weeks summer lecture series as I do every year. We're doing the Maimonidean controversies, uh, fundamental disagreements of Maimonidean controversies in the Middle Ages. We originally, you'll be shocked to hear that I gotta make this seven talks, I can't fit it on to six. I know you'll be surprised to hear that, ha ha ha. I was originally planning to do this whole topic that I'm gonna do tonight in one lecture, but it's gonna require two. So, if you go to the website, the synagogue website, or you'll see in the new where, when, and when, we have the modified schedule, which simply means we have to add um, one lecture to this series. And so tonight, I have the fourth lecture, which is called Jews Burning Books, the Controversy in Montpellier. But that's part one. Next week, I plan to do Jews Burning Books, the Controversy in Montpellier, part two. Tonight's talk is being sponsored by Steve Kaplan in honor of his parents, Howard and Marsha. Without Steve... And a few others, we couldn't, we couldn't do this as often as we do. So you'll follow the, um, the schedule, and you'll see how it works out. Um, without wasting any other time, your preliminaries, other than to thank your labor over here for filming this, and to Howard Elbaum for rushing to do the PowerPoint in time, I think I'll get down to business. And that's probably what you want as well. So here we go. Again. The name of the series is Fundamental Disagreement, the Maimonidean Controversies of the Middle Ages. Today's the fourth lecture, entitled Jews, Burning Books, the Controversy in Montpellier, Part 1. Okay, as I indicated last time, our attention tonight will be directed to Western Europe and Ramadan than Eastern, Eastern part of Mediterranean. Our attention tonight will be directed to Western Europe, particularly the Western Mediterranean, to Spain and southern France. Except in the 1200s, there was no country called Spain, and the south of France was not part of France at that time, not the country we call France. Let's go to the next, here we go. By Spain, we mean Christian Spain. So as you see, the red part is the Christian part, the other part is the Muslim part. There are no Jews in the Muslim part, because as we saw, the Almohads destroyed Judaism in in Islamic Spain. Uh, And specifically, we have in mind the kingdom of Castile and Aragon, so you see in the middle Castile, and to the right the kingdom of Aragon, especially in Aragon a lot of our action is going to be taking place. That is one country where the Maimonidean controversy is going to rage. When I say southern France, let's go to the next one, I have to be very careful over here. If you look at the map on the left, in the books they say like it's Provence. And how many books of Chachmei Provence? Unfortunately, it's not correct. Uh, usually, who cares? But tonight, for the Maimonidean controversy, you got to get it right. And so if you look at the south, the, on the left hand of the map, you'll see the area is called Languedoc, and uh, it's next to Provence. Provence is on the right. And the only reason I mention this, it matters in Jewish history, the cities and places where the fights are going to be are not going to be in Provence, but they're going to be in this little area called Languedoc. If you look on the right and you look closely, you'll notice 
that these are on the Mediterranean, correct? You see the sea below. And you see, sort of like to the left, is Montpellier, right? And it's not far away, about 15 miles away, if you go on that road up to the, uh, that's right, follow it that way, stop, go back a little bit, and there's Lunel. Do you see it down there, there, a little more? Go back, there, stop, freeze. That's Lunel, right? So Montpellier and Lunel are very near each other. If you keep going up the road, you'll come to Nimes, and finally, you'll come to Viver, Viveau, and that used, that's what arrived was, Pasquiers. The only reason I'm doing this is not to give you a touring map of southern France, but I'm going to be using these names, and we'll see a lot, and I'm trying to show you, actually, it's a few small towns located fairly close to each other, in a region which at that time was not part of France, but they spoke French, or they spoke a dialect of it, okay? And for some reason, these four towns that I mentioned, Montpellier, Lugnel, Nîmes, and uh, Vivo, or Cosquiers, uh, were big Mokum Torahs. It's funny. It's funny. There were a couple other places, Bézier, whatever. And so ordinarily, who cares what happens in four small little cities? In our story, it's going to matter a lot. Now remember, Spain and Languedoc are near each other. Again, if you look at the left map, you'll see France at the top, and the country below it is Spain. So nearby is Spain. And this is give it a little bit of an idea of our geography. So the Jewish communities, especially the Talmud HaChemim, know each other and used to correspond. Because if, I told you, you live 15 miles away, or 35 or 40 miles away, right? And if you move over to, to, to northern Spain, you're not that far away. So this is the, the, the Hevra, who know each other, to write to each other, who marry each other, and will have big fights over the reaction to the writings and the ideas of Maimonides. Okay. I might also add that as Talmud HaChemim, all these guys had to respect the monumental achievement of the Rambam in, write, in writing the Mishnah I'm sorry, the uh, Mishnah Torah, was whole, whole shots. All the halachas from A to Z, throwing Kutch and Taras, everything. And so they had to say, whoa, it's amazing. Only a Talmud Chacham, in fact, can appreciate the monumental achievement of the Rambam. I like to call this the Richard Harding Davis effect. Richard Harding Davis was a very famous correspondent. He found himself at the very beginning of the First World War in Belgium. The German army marched right through. He was writing, he was a very good correspondent. He was writing the description. And the Germans come like in ten in a row down the, the, the street marching towards France. They look funny. They wear these funny pickle hats, you know, with the spikes sticking out of the top, which look ridiculous to him. And they're marching like a goose step. And so he's writing, this is a real joke. But then he sees another one, and another group, and another group. A thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand. He sees half a million men march by him, and he just drops the pen, and he says, wow, just the size of this, it just, he started to cry. So, in something of a similar fashion, when they first got the Rambam's book, Mishnah Torah, they go, oh my God, he covered this, and this, and this, and that, and that, and that, and that. How does anybody do that? Plus, he did it when he was young, too, in a few years. So, whatever you think of the other ideas the Rambam has to say, whether you agree with them or not, you got to say, the guy's unbelievable. He wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica of Torah. If they criticized certain halachic rulings of the Rambam, uh, they could not help acknowledging his gigantic achievement, and they did acknowledge it, willingly, I would say, with much admiration. So, overwhelmingly, all the people that are going to be involved in these controversies that we're talking about 
are certainly where the Ramo is a great bit. Okay? They just felt it's messed up in certain places. Remember, disagreeing with the halachic ruling or lambdas, that's not controversial. Kachi Darko Shel Torah. Kachi Darko Shel Torah. The way the, the whole Talmud is full of disputes. These are intellectual arguments, not stom arguments. That's fine. But criticizing matters of belief was something different. As I pointed out last time, the Rambam was a real philosopher, not a rabbi who knew some philosophy. Okay? He was a player. He was a real philosopher. And the philosophy in which he was interested was divine philosophy or theology. And as a logical thinker, the Rambam wanted to know what God is and what he is not. From the standpoint of MS, let's move this slide. Think about what I'm about to tell you. From the standpoint of MS, if you pray to, if you worship or serve something, or some notion or idea, you think is God, and it isn't, you are serving and worshiping something which does not exist, which is at least something that sounds like a Vodazar. Here's a famous passage from the Mornibuchim. Look at this. Anyone who thinks they can worship God without knowing God, LLP Dimiono, he rather relies on his imagination, or what God is, or he heard the opinions of others and just accepted it. That person is not worshiping God. He's actually worshiping a fantasy, something that doesn't exist. Now, this attitude of the Rambam that I just said was a big turnoff to many who simply retorted, Hey, even you admit philosophy cannot comprehend God because God created philosophy. Okay? Get it? God created philosophy. So philosophy can't comprehend God. That's the irony. If you're philosophical, you have to end up not being able to say anything about or to talk to God. So where's your Jewish religion? To which the Rambam, of course, would have responded, at least it can tell you what God is not, what they call negative theology. So I can never reach the, the Holy Grail you know, to find out what God is. But at least I can get rid of all these false ideas. And so you remove bad ideas of what God is, because that's what it is. Now, his critics will continue... Philosophy cannot comprehend what God is. On the other hand, revelation can. Maimon Harsinai, Nevuah. No? I mean, isn't that true? We do have revelation in Judaism. And you, Maimonides, believe it. It's a historic fact, right? You believe, or you say you believe, in the revelations of the Torah Shibik Sav and the Torah Shibapeh, roughly speaking, the Tanakh and the Gemara. If you tell them, if these sources the Bible and the Talmud, tell you something, why can't they be plainly true? Except for maybe a few things. Oh, the Ram said except for a few things. Uh, 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 right? Uh, the problem, of course, is once you say except for a few things, you mean a few things cannot be literally true. You know, God's nostrils are not really going to blaze. He doesn't have a nose. But you're only saying that because of rational thinking. Well, where do you draw the line? You just haven't thought it out through, the Ram said. The same way God can't have a nose, you can't have anger. You see? Things like that. Can't have emotions. Uh, you just haven't worked it out. This problem of not knowing when and where something is literal or not, as we shall see, lay at the heart of the Maimonidean controversies. But in the first incident, the theological problem involved physical resurrection versus spiritual resurrection. Or more accurately, 
what we call Hishara Sanevish, immortality of the soul. To put it in simple English, what happens when you die? If you believe in immortality of the soul, you say like this, you die, you go to heaven. I mean, not your goof, your body disintegrates, but who cares? That's not you. Your soul survives. Let's say you were righteous. You go to heaven and you live in bliss. However you define bliss, right? Spiritually this way or the other. And that's fine. And it goes on forever. Up in heaven, that's where you meet your Bubby, your Zadie, and all their others. Most of and the rest. Or not, you know. No, we don't know exactly what goes on there, but it's good. What do you have to come back for as a goof? Why do you want to come back? What's the point? You're already getting your reward, so to speak. You understand? That's called Yishara Sanevish, the immortality of the soul. The other way is called Tchiyas Mason, in which you actually come back out of the ground or some other way, and you, you know, and you end up looking like I and him at this moment. You come back with skin and bones and all the rest of it. A goof. Now, this question, whether Rambam believed in Tchiyas Mason or just Yishara Sanevish, was a big fight towards the end of the Rambam's life. A little bit of chronology is necessary. The Rambab, I hate to do this, but you know, in history, whether you like it or not, facts, I mean, dates and geography matter. They do. The Rambam published the Mishnah Torah in the late 1170s in Hebrew. The fact that it was in Hebrew meant it could circulate throughout the Jewish world, the scholarly world, especially and including in Christian Spain and in Languedoc in France. And it did. Now, we're talking long ago, and to make copies and accurate copies of a Britannica-sized book was quite a, a challenge, but it could be done. And if I, who am living in France, or Italy, or Spain, or somewhere else, get the book, and I can read Hebrew, if I can read Rashi, for example, beg your pardon, if I can read Hebrew, I can read the book. So I can see the Ramah's famous code of Jewish law. But this was the age before the printing press. And so, it didn't happen overnight. It took at least a decade, and actually more, for copies of the whole work, particularly accurate copies, and accurate copies is a constant problem in the old days before you had printing press, it took a fair number of years to circulate. I mean, think of the size of the book, okay? So it's quite a copying challenge. This was, before the printing press, the age of the copyist, male and female. In the event... I mean, I just want you to think about that. Here's a lady who's married. She's at home with the kids. Uh, she'd like to bring in some income. How could she? She can't go out of the house. And, you know, not really. She might have an hour or two or three to play with at evening when everybody's finally asleep. The kids are asleep. And she's talking. And so she'd like to bring in a little bit of money. Copy out a whole rumbo. It'll take you a year or two, but you can sell for a lot of money. That's the world of our ancestors. In the event, it took about 15, 20 years for the Mishnah Torah to reach the West. I mean Spain and France. Although I think pieces of it reached there earlier. So, let's again go to the mise-en-scene. Here we are. It's circulating towards the south, right? See where Montpellier is? It's like to the left of Marseille. This is the area in which all this stuff is going to happen. Okay, Toulouse. The, the area of southern France on the Mediterranean. By contrast, the Rambam's commentary in the Mishnah was in Arabic and wasn't translated, and so it did not circulate outside the Arab world until much later. So when people read 
The Rambam means they read the Mishnah Torah, and they read, among other things, Hilchus Teshuva, the laws of repentance, and the Hebrew Mishnah Torah. And if that's all you read, it seems like, when the Rambam's writing over there, that he's believing in Hisharos HaNevish, as opposed to Tchiyas HaMesim, it sounds like the immortality of the soul, not physical resurrection. Where many verses in Chazals seem to indicate Tchiyas HaMesim, physical resurrection. And therefore they got very offended. They thought the Rambam was suggesting a basic belief of traditional Judaism was erroneous. Now, the reason I'm, I hope I haven't confused you, if they had read his Mishnah commentary, which was in Arabic, there he says you have to believe in Tchiyas HaMesim, physical resurrection, as one of the 13 principles. It's still we see Ani Mamen, okay? Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you know from Yigdal, Meisim Yechayel, Barov Chazdel, Baruch Adayah, Chantil right? Meisim Yechayel. So, although that's not exactly a good example, but okay, it's close enough. Uh, but they only read the Mishnah Torah. In Mishnah Torah, Hilchus Chuba, Dramam talks this kind of language. Oh, the greatest uh, reward is when you uh, get to heaven and then there's no eating or drinking or anything like that. It's just you bask in bliss, which is beyond uh, the best pleasure. So it sounds like that's all there is, okay? In other words, in Hill History, we don't talk about physical resurrection. Now I'm talking about the late 1190s, maybe in a little bit later. The Rambam was by that time in his 60s. He died at 66. A few years later, uh, I'm sorry, a few years earlier, in 1191, the Rambam had written in Arabic his Igeris Tchias because there were people in the Arab world who thought he didn't believe in Tchias And he bluntly stated his Isharis HaNefesh approach, okay? There was a certain amount of Tchias And he um, completed his Guide for the Perplexed in the same year, but all this was in Arabic. Now, very simple, and I mentioned this before, and perhaps I'll mention it again. The Rambam has a very strange attitude towards life after death. He basically says like this. You live, you die, you go to heaven or hell, you come back, but let's say you're good. So you come back, but then you die again, and then you stay, stay in, in paradise and bliss. Okay? Because at the end, the end, the end of the process, you're not a goof, you're not a body anymore. But there was an intermediate period when you were. People say, where'd you get that from? Okay? Now, it was right around this time, in the early 1190s, that the Rambam's Mishnah Torah started to be a presence in southern France. People started to get copies of it in a serious way. In Languedoc, I'm talking about, over here. The map you see here at the bottom, Montpellier, and Nimes, and so forth. And, my goodness, my goodness. Uh, here I would call attention to the four important communities. Let's go to the next map. Right? So you see how close they are, right? As I said before. You go from Montpellier and up to Lugnel, and Vauvert is Pasquers, that's where the Rivet lived. So, one is that if you look at it, it's 13 miles from one place, the other 25 miles from another place, so all in the same general area. Um, the arrival of such an encyclopedic work made a big splash in this area, which was full of communities that were small in number, had major league Talmudic Chacham in there. A positive splash it made, and a negative splash. How negative? Well, some said, who does this Maimonides guy think he is? Writing that all you need is his book. Because Ramu said, you got Chumash on my book, you're set. He arrogantly puts his book in a different category than all the other Sifrei Rishonim. 
How is he better than us? Is his book better? How so? He can make mistakes. He does make mistakes. Plenty of them. Believe me. So his tone, they said about the Rambam, of arrogance that his book covers a cold Torah cool. It's no better than any other Rishon's book. It's okay. It's good. It's a major work of Torah literature. Not to live again. This was the reaction of the Yeshiva and Pasquiers. Yeah, that's all the way on the right. Pasquiers is Vauvert. No longer exists. It's part of the town of Vauvert. It's all in southern France. You get a general idea. Not too far from the Mediterranean. And in that small town was maybe one of the leading Rishonim at that time to arrive at. Okay? Who was uh, in his 70s. He was a multi-millionaire. He was able to bankroll his own yeshiva. And he got a hold of this book in his old age. And he blew a cut. I'm talking about the Mishnah Torah now. Because he said, who does he think? He thinks that you know, his book is perfect. All you need is my book. And you don't need, you don't need the Gemara. And I told you before, it's not exactly what the Rambam meant. On the other hand, his language, his, his language was unfortunate. And could be possibly construed that way. And these guys did. Now, as everybody knows, whatever his personal enmity derives criticisms of the Rambam, because he wrote a whole book called Hasagot, as everybody who's ever opened the Rambam knows, are highly respected. And they certainly showed the Rambam made a number of mistakes. They put a dent in the armor of the Mishnah Torah. You know, when you read the Mishnah Torah without any of the uh, fruit salad, so it seems like it's great. It is great. And the Ram just rolls on. He's got uh, uh, halacha after halacha. When you read it together with the Ravid, here, there, 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 he'll say, oh, you made a mistake on this. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. And he starts to say, well, it's not what it put up to be. Although, to be fair, at the end of the day, most of the time, the Ravid does not criticize the Ramam. So even the Ravid, therefore, is not conceding, you know, 90% he got right. And anyway, this was the reception in Pasquier's in that community all the way on the right of the map. In Montpellier, which is on your left, you see it, right? On the top map? In Montpellier, by contrast, the Mishnah Torah, or the parts that reached them, blew them away. They did not have the negative reaction like the Ravid. They thought the Mishnah Torah and its author was the cat's pajamas. As a matter of fact, they wanted to get in contact with him. And they started writing to the Rambah without, however, receiving a reply. I'm not 100% sure why he did not reply, even though he wrote to them, they wrote to him repeatedly. Later we'll see he replied, he said I was too weak. They wrote to him asking him many questions. Some questions were halachic questions, others were questions of belief. So there's a one-way correspondent where the people in Montpellier, the Talmud Chacham there, are sending people on boats, you know, merchants going to the east, and so when you get to Egypt, give this to Rambam, maybe he'll write us back. Uh, they wrote him all kinds of questions. Eventually, in 1194, the 56-year-old Maimonides responded to the scholars in Montpellier regarding the subject of astrology. It was a typically bold Maimonidean essay. The Rambam declared astrology bogus. Among the reasons it was bogus, if you read it, is the Greek philosophers don't believe in it, and they actually know what they're talking about. Now, that's not the only reason he said it, right? In addition, from a Torah perspective, there was no basis for Scharva Onish if you accept astrological determinism. In other words, why did this guy commit a crime? Well, he was born under Mars, therefore he had the, the, the predisposition to kill. That's not fair. This guy was not born under Mars. So how can it be one set of laws and punishment and reward when, you know, uh, one guy was just born in a bad situation with, with a bad star and is predestined to do something bad? Because if you're an astrologer, you say, this is going to happen 
because of the stars. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter abides with Mars or whatever it was, so you're going to end up doing this. And we believe that we have Bechira, free choice, and Scarbonish, and punishment reward based on the choices you make in life. So I'll repeat what I just said. Dramam said that astrology, which he said he read up on, he says the first subject I studied when I was young, and I mastered it, I read all the books on the subject, plus astronomy. And after it was all over, I came to the clear conclusion, astronomy is a science. Astrology is bogus. Okay? But the reason is, as he said before, he's the Babylonians write about these other idiots, but the Greek philosophers who knew what they're talking about, they don't write about it. Uh, they don't agree with it. Hey, what about the Gemaras that talk about astrology? Okay? You'll find in the Gemara, like I said before, whoever's born under the red star is going to be a shepherd of Dhamma. Here, Maimonides was quite bold. Let's take a look at this. This is the Rambam writing to the Chachme Montpellier. Aniyo de'a she'afshar she'techbetsu v'timtsu divri echina mi'chachme emes rabbaseinu talmud mishlam midrashas. You can find a couple of rabbis in the Gemara in those kind of places. She'devreim marbim she's told us on garma kacham kach v'kach that they believe in astrology and say based on the stars that were in ascendant when a kid was born that's how the kid's going to turn out. Al yikshiv zebeid echem. Don't let that bother you. She'ein derech you don't go off the normal path and look for weirdisms. Okay? And you don't do matters which are logical. Okay? And abandon them. Which have been proved by solid proofs. And sort of just toss them off. And go by a minority opinion in the Talmud. In other words, Maybe there was a rabbi in the Gemara involved from astronomy, um, astrology. Could be. He was wrong. Or to be more accurate, because the Rambam will use those words, although in some gears as he did, he'll say, Maybe the rabbi in the Gemara who said he believed in astrology had a bad day. He was missing something that day. Or maybe he wasn't being literal. He was hinting at something. Or or you don't know the context. Maybe he said it because of some particular, highly unusual contextual situation. Doesn't mean he believed in astrology. Hey, it's not a question of taking something not literal. There are plenty of psikkim in the Chumash that we interpret in a non-literal fashion. Isn't that true? And because logic tells you can't be literal, the matarium translated in a, in a way that makes sense. Now, I think he's referring to Unculus, of whom he was a big admirer. Now, Unculus lived time of the Gemara, way before the Maimonidean controversy. And Unculus, as anybody knows anything, it always does a Maimonides work. Whenever you see something literalistic or whatever, he changes it, right? It's never God's, uh, you know, uh, uh, woke up, but, you know, uh, the glory of God woke up or something like that, you see? Uh, it's never God's finger, it's his providence, that sort of thing. So don't toss your common sense out and back and just follow what some stupid guy told you. Because that's why guys, God put your eyeballs in your front, not your back. So you should always be progressive. That's what I think. I, I revealed my heart to you. So you asked me what I think about astrology, and that's what I told you. Now this kind of language is interesting. It could, it's the type of language which is, which is a turn on to some and a turn off to others. Okay? The opposite to others. If you're a certain 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use words I shouldn't use. If you're a modern Orthodox educated guy, you go, oh, this is great. If you're a super Hasidic or whatever, oh, it's terrible. Okay? This is clearly what happened. I mean, 800 years ago. Two teams formed in Montpellier, two Jewish groups, and they spread to other communities nearby. In other words, two types of reactions bred two types of, they're not formal teams, two types of groups. Some people in the town read this stuff and thought it's great, and they became big Rambam Hasidim, and others the opposite, okay? One team thought the, the reply was amazing and authoritative, coming as it did from a master of Shas, they took the attitude, wow, the Rambam said it, he knows Kol Tarakula, so I didn't think it before, but if he said it, wow, very good, okay, forget astrology. Plus, the letter obviously came from a brilliant intellectual, you read the letter, starting as it does, with Ryan Monody's famous epistemology. Let's go to the next one. At the beginning of the letter, when they asked him about astrology, he lays out the case in a very logical way. Look at this. To Ura Bosite, understand one thing. When you put your trust or belief in something, it better be based on one of three things. Harisham, the first basis for believing in something. Something that's absolutely lo- logical in an unbreakable way, like ma- mathematics and arithmetic. I believe 3 plus 3 equals 6. You know, it can be proven decisively. That's one type. We would call today, this is modern science already, sense perception. If you feel it, you taste it, you see it, you actually experience it, okay, then it's real. I can see that this is black and that's green. I can see it. I can see that this tastes sweet and this tastes bitter because I can taste it. I can tell that this is hot or cold because I can feel it. He's going through the senses. I can hear this a regular voice as an echo. Or something smells good or something smells bad because you have your senses, right? What's the third basis that a normal person should believe something. I mean, like I say, either you, you, you experience it like in a modern scientific way, or you have logical proofs, as I said before, like what you have with mathematics. Uh, or if you have a reliable uh, revelation tradition. If you macabre something from Sadiqim and from Nevi'im, from righteous people and prophets. Okay? So, in the end, that's a from statement. Well, wait a minute. Is that a from statement or not? The anti-Rambam guys, the guys that are turned off, say, what do you need number one and number two for? Why don't you just go right away to number three? You see? Now, the correspondence proved for his fans to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, they sent him a famous letter with 24 questions on the Mishnah Torah. He said, I'm so happy to get... And they, no, they asked him cautious. They said, what well, you said here doesn't make sense, and this seems to be wrong, and this seems to be wrong. He loved it. You're Talmini Chachamim. I see the real thing. You're reading my book and studying it like you should study it. You know, I never said I was perfect. There's a couple of places where they caught him. He said, you got me wrong. I'm wrong over here. I'm wrong over here. Or maybe you didn't get a good copy. Or sometimes he answers him back. Once in a while he says to them, this is so simple. Smart guys like you should have asked a question. And so on and so forth. He loved to get those kind of Torah-dicker questions. Right? Even Kasha's. Um, that's when he uh, wrote that famous letter to the Scholars of Lunyo, 
in which he apologized. He said, you know, I spent too much. Talk to Shivish with Deb, right? Because he, he liked to. He said, I, you know, I was really born to marry the girl called Totoro. And uh, taking a couple of concubines and spent too much time with them. That'd be science, math, philosophy, and all the rest of it. Um, his later letter, right, because later he corresponded them again, he called upon them to increase the quality of their Torah study because he said, you are the future of Torah. Look at this next uh, slide. How, this is uh, pathetic. This is my money's in his old age writing to the people in Montpellier and in Luniel. I want you to know, in the lousy, terrible times in which we live currently, there are no people who can raise the banner of Moses or Avashi, meaning nobody who actually knows how to learn Torah. You guys in Languedoc, you guys in Montpellier, in Nimes, in Pascares, in uh, Luniel. Okay. I can tell by your letters you guys are serious about learning. You know, full-time learning. And you have IQ. Everywhere else in the world of the Torah the Torah has, is lost. I hate to say it around this gives the idea of how Maimonides viewed the world. And he basically viewed the world a bunch of dummies. It's a sad it's the Jewish people, but they're all unbelievably ignorant. I don't care if the guy's called a rabbi. They don't know anything, okay? Rova, Medina, Sigadolus, Mesos. Most of the big cities are already dead. Mutant ghosts and some are dying. <laughs> That's how we, how we, how we do. So just imagine somebody say today, Lakewood, Baltimore, uh, you know, Muncie, uh, uh, whatever. Gates said, oh, they're, they're dead or dying, okay? Uh, that's how he saw it. And a few are, uh, what would we say? You're not dead, you're not dying. They're seriously ill. Okay? There's a few places, actually there's a grand total of one community in the whole Israel and Syria area which they learn and not that great. That's Aleppo, right? For you Syrians watching this. Uh, and he says, They don't really kill themselves learning. They, you know, as we would say today, B level, you know. They're okay. Uh, and the whole rest of the Middle East is two or three little drops of learning. In Yemen, these other place, they, they don't touch the Gomorrah. All they do is they learn a little bit for, as we would say, they, to be the kind of mitzvah of Talmud Torah. That, that doesn't mean you know. Listen, anybody learns anything, and I'm serious, I'm not being funny, you set aside time, and you give it a shot, even if you don't understand the Gemara or all the rest of it, you definitely get scar for Joshua Kabbalah Schar. You really do, okay? But it's not, but we're in bad shape if nobody understands the Gemara, you see? And so, um, these places got copies of my book, and that So from the Middle East all the way to India, if they have copies of my book, they're able to practice Judaism. The Jews in India never heard of the Gemara. All they have is the Chumash. The only Jewish practices they have is they observe the Sabbath, and they have bris milah, and that's it. <laughs> all right. 
There are plenty of places where they just follow the Chumash straight, literally. And in my country, Spain and Morocco, we know the Arabs messed them over, right? To you guys in Lunyel, in Montpellier, in those places, you're the only ones left to keep up the learning. Okay? Chizku. Uh, you have to hold the, the, the Jewish people. You have to be the valiant soldiers. Because otherwise the Torah is going to be forgotten. Because of dummyism. Okay? So you have to, like we say to the Yibam. Either Chalets or Yabib. Right? So, uh, was it fish or don't fish? How's the expression go? Right? Fish or kabeh? Said, so notice, if you're serious, throw yourselves into the learning. And don't rely on me. I'm old. I'm old and over the hill. Not because I'm chronologically old, because he was only in the 60s. But I've, I've had a, a history of illness. And so on and so forth. So he said, Rama, I've always been frail. Constitution will have to take him at his word. And therefore, I don't have what I once had. It's up to you guys. So I'm, I'm sharing that with you, first of all, because it's interesting. And second of all, to show you the very warm relationship he had with these funny communities, Montpelier, whoever heard of these guys, out in Languedoc, province in what wasn't even southern France at that time. For their part, the guys in Languedoc, the Frenchies, they asked for all of his Arab books. They were in love with him. Send us everything you've written. He sent them his Murnabukum, the Guide for the Perplexed, the philosophy book. And he said, I do not have time <laughs> translating the Hebrew. I have no time for anything. I have a medical practice. It's a killer. That's what he writes. But what he did was, he said like this, you get somebody to translate. And he even recommended somebody. And the team in Languedoc, his fans, were happy to execute the translations themselves. Indeed, they're anxious to do so as soon as possible. And the main guy in the team, that was the pro Maimonides, was the number one Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Honosan HaKohen of Luniel, who I called the Unrivid. He was a student of the Rivid, but the Rivid was what we would call today an extreme right-winger and anti-Maimonidean, whereas Rabbi Honosan HaKohen, who was a big, like a big Risham, he, in fact, they didn't publish his stuff, he wrote in the whole Shas, and he wanted to write this grand commentary on the Rift, which would, notice he would have, I'll be anachronistic. He would have knocked out the Ron and the Muki Yosef. You know, he was that level. Okay? He wanted to be like the Rashi on the Rift. Let's put it that way. Um, and he's in the back of the Gemara, for those who don't know I'm talking about in the Erevin. Uh, and, and, and anyway, here's a guy who thinks the Rambam's great. Here comes the Mishnah Torah. And, I mean, he was going to, Rabbi Yonason Akoyim wanted to write the big commentary on the Rift, which is the kids of the Gemara. But the Rambam takes the Rift, you know, to new levels of clarity and simplicity. So he was like blown away by it, and they clearly bond very closely through correspondence. They write each other in loving terms. It's very interesting. And this Rabbi Yonason, who was loaded, hired a guy, Shmuel ibn Tibbon, to do the translation. Shmuel ibn Tibbon writes to the Rambam in the last year of his life, and they warmly correspond. Rambam was 60, a few years before he died, on all kind of matters of translation. And yet he said, what does this Arab word mean? I want to translate this way. And the Rambam gives him his advice how to approach translation in general, and he praises him, and so on and so forth. Okay? So in other words, 
if you're talking about the early 1200s, there's a love fest going on between the Rambam on the one hand in Egypt and these guys in Luniel and Montpelier and so forth uh, over there. Now remember, they're one of two teams. The other team hates the new stuff. Um, and they're having a grand old time. In fact, I would say Rabbi Yonason Hakoin was such a fan of the Rambam that even though they had this guy Shmuel Ibn Tibbet to translate the Marnebuchim, but he hired another guy, the famous poet Yehud al-Kharizi, my favorite poet, to do a second translation because the first guy was taking too slow and it's a little too technical. He wanted something, like we would say today, can give me the Reader's Digest version of the Marnebuchim. Okay? I'm just showing you that to show you they couldn't get enough of the Maimonides stuff. Right in the middle of this love fest, a young, important rabbi in Spain, not in France, writes to the scholars in Luniel and in Languedoc, I want you to join me publicly in condemning the Rambam for his heretical position on the subject of physical or spiritual resurrection of Tchiesa Mason versus Nevish. I want to come out with a strong letter blasting Maimonides for not accepting Tchiesa Mason. This young person was the Yad Ramah. Uh, who they heard about in yeshivas, because he became a famous Rishon. But at this time, he's like 20, 25 years old, a very young guy. So he obviously was a young, uh, what's the right word, from um, self-appointed champion. He doesn't mind taking on Moses Maimonides, the biggest rabbi at the time, because he thinks he's wrong on the subject of Tchiesa Mason. Okay? Now, Ramon, Rama, Rameir Halevi Ablafia, was a millionaire, come from a millionaire family, he married a girl from a millionaire family, his follower Rosh Hashiva and the president of the community. He married a girl from a similar background. So he's a member of what we would call the Jewish aristocracy. And at this time he's in Toledo, which is, of course, the capital of the kingdom of Castile, which is not that far away. Now, um, he started assembling all the places in the Gemara, the Agathas, which seemed to describe physical resurrection. And not only that, until the Rambam brought it up, everybody thought that, you ask any Jew, what's Chiesa You come back, right? The Rambam makes fun. He says, are you coming back in your original clothes? You're still going to wear the bow tie, whatever. But these guys didn't think it was funny. You're coming back. Why? How? I don't know. God knows. You're coming back. That, that, that's, the, that's the future. So how, right? So how dare Maimonides say that this is wrong? You're going against the whole Jewish tradition. Yes, he's a great man. Uh, okay, fine. Okay. Yes, the Mishnah Torah is a great monumental work. Okay, fine. That's why he has to be called out. Since he's so popular and powerful, if he says bad hashkaf ideas, people are going to follow him. So I want you to join me in condemning his shita on resurrection. And when he heard, the Ramah says, I told you before, you know, first you die, then you go to heaven, then you come back later on in physical resurrection. And then you eventually die later on and stay in bliss as, as a ghost, as an neshama. He said, I'd rather die once than die twice. Doesn't make any sense. Right? I'd rather, I'd rather stay in bliss in Shemayim, which makes sense. Then come back again. Doesn't make any sense. Now what the Ramah, Rameyer, Halevi, Abelafi wanted was to do like Rav Shach did the Steinsatz. I want to make sure it's clear that this particular set of ideas is Michutz Lamachne Torah. We just want to make clear this is considered wrong. You want to read it, you want to hold it, but no, it's the unfront position. Well, not exactly. Uh, Steinsatz wanted to make, I'm sorry, Shach wanted to make Steinsatz trafe. 
And that would puzzle all the books that Steinfeld wrote. And that's what he did to him. In this case, our case, it would be more like, I want to puzzle certain things and certain beliefs of the Rambam, not the rest of the Mishnah Torah. When the Rambam writes the halachas from, you know, Babakam, Babatziah, fine. When he writes a Kachim and Tyrus, fine. You know, you can take it or leave it based on the Lumbus. But um, when he writes about life after death, kill it. Okay? Now, this is supposed to be a diss on the entire rationalist Mahalich. The rationalist discourse, which measured Torah by external criteria instead of the other way around. You follow? Do I see if the Torah makes sense based on what science teaches, or do I say I, I judge science based on what the Torah teaches? Now, to his chagrin, this young, real frummy could not get the rabbis in Spain in Toledo to support him in condemning the Rambam, which surprised him. I'm coming out with what we would call a yeshivish position, right? a right-wing position, and the right-wing rabbis wouldn't do it. And so he appealed to Languedoc, to the French rabbis in Luniel, Montpellier, and so forth. To his greater chagrin, the scholars of Languedoc replied by blasting Mayer. Who do you think you are? Number one, you're garnished. <laughs> right? You're a pygmy compared to the Rambam. So basically, where do you get the chutzpah to talk like this to an autumn gold? It's a different sensibility. Um, I used to have a friend, Joe Shavik, passed away. Old man. And he told me a story back in the 20s, I think it was maybe 30s, that uh, he was friend, a certain from guy in Baltimore, I won't say the name, uh, used to learn with uh, Rabbi Davis, who was a yeshiva type guy. And so the Balabas, at that time, paid this uh, rabbi to learn with him. That's pretty good in the 1920s, American-born. And then he told me, a certain Rav came to Baltimore to make a speech. I don't know who it was but obviously a prominent Orthodox rabbi of that day. And this rub said, you don't have to worry about Chal Yisrael because in America you can trust the uh, regular milk. You know, like Ramosha Feinstein said later. Okay, to this Balabas, who was not learned, but was from, and he paid the rabbi to learn with him, he got up, I'm telling you a story that I was told, and he said, but rabbi, I want to know one thing. Will you drink that milk? You say it's okay. Will you drink it? Now, you say like this, oh, very good. Right? The rabbi he learned with, David said, I guess I'm not learning with you anymore. How dare you talk like that to Adam Goto? It's a different sensibility. Yes, you cover the Torah. It's, it's not the way we think nowadays. You see? Old school is, first of all, you, you know who you're dealing, dealing with. You have to speak respectfully and even with humility to someone like that. that. So you're talking about the Ramah, you want to blast from or something. Says, who the heck are you to blast anybody, you little, you know? You're still in your diapers. That's number one. Right? Number two, they said, and nobody actually knows the meaning of the Agata statements about lost in love. Like I said before, you see, you're going to come back, is it this or that or heaven? Hell. Nobody knows. I mean, we're going to know when it happens. Okay? When it happens, you'll know what it means. See, even you must concede that my mommies might be right. Maybe. Maybe is, maybe isn't. So you can't condemn his views as heresy. Get it? That was the uh, famous letter. And it's all in that book, Yad Ramah, in, uh, called Yigris Ramah. It's very, this is classic stuff. 
Aaron ben Mishulam, who was the big Rosh Hashiva over there, he wrote him back along the lines that I just said. As for Rabbi Yonatan Akoin, the other big girl, he wasn't even Gairus, this guy, right? This would-be champion of Orthodoxy. And he's the biggest rabbi in, in France, in southern France. So it just didn't make it, I'm sure, that Mir Halevi Abu Lafia, who went on to become a famous reason, was having like a certain short circuit, because worlds weren't developing the way he expected. To remain Yonason of Luniel, nothing the Rambam said could be branded Michus Lamachne. The fault lay in the unsophisticated Fermis who did not know how to interpret Agatha. The correct interpretation of Agatha is actually a religious obligation. I repeat, the proper and correct interpretation of the Agatha is a religious obligation. A from but incorrect interpretation was a sin. You get that? Right? Let's say you, you interpret an Agatha to say that God has a hand. I'll just make this easy, easy up. You did that from reasons, but you're wrong. You're actually doing a sin because you're ascribing physicality, corporeality to God. That's one of the biggest sins. I know you meant well, but the road to health paid with, you know, with good intentions. Okay? So we know that. Uh, profoundly disconcerted, uh, Mayor Halevi, this young champion, said, I'm not going to have any luck in Spain for some reason. I can't get also in Languedoc people to see my point. I don't know why. And so I'm going to try my luck and appeal for help not to the south of France, but to the north of France, to Tosfus. Because he lived at the time when Tosfus was still operating, the Tosfusistic era. In the early 1200s, which is what we're talking about, it's the third generation of the Tosfus, I guess, the leading Baltosis, the leading rabbi of the Tosfus school in France was Rajbot, or Shumshim ben Abra Mishams. Right, there are two Rajbots, watch out for this. Especially in Yeshivas, there is the Rajbo, that's Shimshim ben Abram of, of Sons, and then there is the Rajbo, the Spanish Rishon, which is the one you hear about in Yeshivas all the time. So just don't confuse yourself between the Rajbo and the Rajbo. Here I'm talking about the Rajbo. It's the Rajbo Samson of Sons, of Shimshim of Sons. Here, Mayor Levi Abulafia was on more friendly ground. Ashkenaz was like Benay Brock, you know. They had a completely different cultural development, much more culturally insular. I've spoken about this many times in the past. In northern France and in Germany, we saw what you call the Dark Ages. And so there was no secular culture at all. Christians didn't produce that. And so if you're Jewish growing up generation after generation in Ashkenaz, there's nothing out there, no books or anything to read, other than Jewish books or Torah books. And so this is the origin of Yeshivaism in which, you know, uh, you have extreme cultural insularity. You strive for it anyway, okay? So that's what was going in Tosas. Now, the Bali Tosas, these kind of rabbis, just go tell them that Maimonides said, you know, God doesn't have power, or God is not good because he created good. They're going to freak out, right? You don't get it. And they're not interested in that approach. And if you say that Aristotle teaches this, that actually makes it trafe. It's a completely different mindset, okay? Now, it was not that they were in among the Ashkenazi <laughs> unsophisticated literalists, they were sophisticated literalists. Any interpretation of Agatha or the Bible, okay, um, has to, any interpretation has to derive from common sense, not from Aristotle. 
Goyim should have no place in understanding Torah. And so, you know, they would have no uh, interest in Ramos. Well, the Greek philosophers have proven this and then I don't even the Greek philosophers. Okay? I would say the general Ashkenazic approach would be to read and understand the Gomorrah and Agatha at a literal level. And understand and take it as a literal level. After you've done that, you say, okay, I believe this literally. Then you can speculate as to other non-literal means. So, to use a modern example, well, it's, not, it's not a fair case, but I'll use it because it comes to mind. First, you have to say God created the world in six days. Six days is 24 hours. Okay? Done. You can do anything. Done. Now that we have that down, I'm willing to entertain other ways of reading the six days. Maybe each day is a billion years, you know, that kind of thing. But first, I don't want to hear right off the bat, six days is ridiculous. That whole notion of ridiculous, right? The Gomorrah says, the God said, my arm hurts, it's ridiculous. I don't want to hear ridiculous, okay? Maybe it's true. Maybe it's literal. Maybe not. I just want to offhandedly just toss off, you know, the literal approach, okay? Uh, as opposed, so after you've done it, you can speculate about other meanings. As opposed to immediate out reje rejection of the valence of literal reading, and theologically damning anyone who thinks of it literally, because Maimonides does that. Remember the famous Rambam versus the Rambam. The Rambam says, anybody who thinks that God could have any form of a goof is going to burn in hell. He's not going to be, get into paradise. It's one of the, uh, he's a min. And the Rambam says, and the Rambam coming from, from uh, Poskier in, uh, in Landau, he's not a min, the Rambam says. You might be wrong. I'm not saying God does have an arm. You know, that, that's true. But just because the guy thinks it, it takes literally, doesn't make you a cover. It just may be factually incorrect. The Ram said, if you're factually incorrect, then you're like a heretic. No, you're not. There's a clash of views. There's no uh, way to work this out. There's just two different ways of seeing things. Okay? Now, um, the Rosh Bob, the Rosh Shimshin of Sons, was definitely one of the greatest scholars of his time. He actually wrote the Tosas. The, this is what I'm talking about, the Gmarashi Tosa, the Tosa that we have is really, really called the Tosa of the Bull. Uh, but we have it in an abbreviated form because a student of his, Rabbi Eliezer of Tuk, which is a city near the English Channel, uh, Rabbi Eliezer of Tuk, uh, abbrevi uh, yeah, you know, abbreviated them, uh, with Makassar them. And those are the ones that end up on the page of the uh, regular Gmars that we have. But the actual composition of Tosas, by which I mean, you start with this question, this answer, then you bring up a band of Tom, then you ask that question, you know, the whole sequence of arguments comes from this guy's original book. It's a big deal, okay? That itself is huge. And in addition, if you know the Rosh Bull, he's the Rosh. So when you get to those things of uh, Taharis, Rowan, those uh, missionaries that don't have uh, Gemara on it, you know, uh, so he writes a big commentary on the Mishnah, which is better than the Rambam, frankly. Well, because Rama has this synthetic way of doing the British Mishnahis. And the Rosh, I mean, whenever I've done it, not long ago, Steve Kaplan and I did one at uh, Omegvos, the Rosh Ball, the Rosh was great. Okay? He brings everything, one very clear. So he was a great man. As a French Ashkenazic rabbi, the greatest of his day, the Rosh Ball totally agreed with the Yad Ramah that the Rambam's position on Tchiyas Mason was wrong that it was grounded in Maimonides' misguided Aristotelianism and should be publicly condemned and blasted as kafira. okay? 
as Rabbi Chaim Brisker used to say, Nebuchadnezzar Kaifer, you know? Ram's a great man, but on this thing, he's a Kaifer. Now, he's not calling him a heretic, but on this, his, on this particular subject, his opinions are radical. In a public letter, Rosh Bob used vivid, vivid imagery to stigmatize Maimonides. As you see, he quoted from the famous verse in Daniel that there was this big and powerful two-horned ram that was crushing everything. That would be the Rambam. But then this little and sleek unicorn comes and kills the ram. That would be Mir Halevi Abelafia. So even though the Rambam is this big ram, but in the end, the unicorn took him down because the unicorn represents a truth. Uh, so there's no question over here where the Rosh holds on this particular subject. Now this had nothing to do with the halachic material in the Mishnah Torah, right? That was the subject of a different kind of critique of the Rosh And then he complained that the Rambam didn't write any footnotes or didn't he, he didn't include the, the names of the Tanoi Mamrayim. You know, even the Rambam conceded that that was a mistake. But I'm talking over here hashkafa questions, questions of belief, theology. My point, of course, is that all these criticisms of the beliefs of Maimonides did not mean the critics did not acknowledge his great knowledge and amazing accomplishments in publishing the Mishnah Torah, but they did not want that um, prestige to lead to acceptance of his incorrect beliefs. When he's right, he's right, but when he's wrong, he's wrong. Sometimes he's wrong. In the midst of this tempest, Maimonides died at the end of 12, in December of 1204. 1204 leaving behind an only child, a 19-year-old son, Avram ben Arambam. Despite his youth, Avram ben Arambam stepped into his father's shoes, becoming the Nagid of the Jews, 19, the government-appointed head of the Jewish community in Egypt, as well as taking up his father's Gucci medical practice. That's just interesting. Here, people are going to this doctor who's like 65, and then he's not there, because in those times, the 19-year-old son is taking over. Okay? But he was that good. He was that good. Abraham would rise to the directorship of the hospital in Cairo, which was the highest medical position. Okay? To be very exact, by the way, uh, in case there are anybody listening to this who actually knows the history, the Rambam was not exactly the official Nagid at the time of his death. There was this guy, a Korach type named Zuta, with whom Rambam actually battled all the time he was in Egypt, uh, which was Jewish politics at its worst. And, you know, A knocked out B and B knocked out A. And it was a messy politics going on over here because this other family kept trying to horn and take over and use their power to bribe the government and get the positions. I'm not going to go into all that. Okay? In addition, Avram ben Haramba was determined to defend his father's reputation and views. So like his father, Avram ben Haramba always maintained a very dignified public persona. You'll see a lot of times they'll say, this guy, this, you want you this and that. I don't do that. Right? No point. I don't do that. I don't, as Eisenhower said, I'm not going to get in the gutter with that guy. That's Aram ben Aramam. Okay? If you read the writings of Aram ben Aramam, especially his introduction to the Agadatov, which is typically published at the beginning of the Yaakov, although now it's published in a censored version, uh, and his commentary on the Chumash, you see he's a chip off the old block. He skipped a few over here. Going. Going. Here we go. Each one wrote a, the father wrote the guide for the perplexed, uh, the son wrote guide to serving God. Which means that some was a little more uh, into the mystical, spiritual side. But okay, but it's still very um, logical, very uh, rational. Like, 
Like his father, and say Amr ben Aram was attacked by the Suto family, but that's another story. Back in Spain, it was clear that the efforts of Mayor Halevi Abulafia to create a firestorm of righteous protest against the Rambam were not going to be successful. So it kind of petered out, at least for a moment. Nevertheless, the approach of Maimonides, I mean the controversial stuff, continued to smolder. The Maimonidean approach, as I said earlier, had led to different reactions in Languedoc. On the one hand, many scholars, usually called the Chachmi Lunyol, thought that the Rambab's approach, as they said before, was a cat's pajamas. It doesn't get better. The perfect, they viewed it literally as the perfect combination of Torah motto. And so is everyone. I think down to today, even the Mephrumis guy out there, and I don't know where, in May Sharm will say this, the Rambam was a perfect uh, uh, Torah but nobody else. <laughs> not us. The Rambam knew how to do it, but not us. Okay? Uh, so the guys who were on his side thought he's great. On the other hand, there were the other scholars in those same communities in Languedoc who were viscerally repelled by the entire approach and the condescending language. Again, they were not bothered by what the Rambam wrote, let's say, in Hilchus Gittin or Hilchus Shabbos, but they were turned off by the philosophy and science stuff, which to them was not part of Torah, and were therefore a take-it-or-leave-it phenomenon which had no place in Mishnah Torah. So in Hilchus, at the beginning, in Hilchus Torah, Hilchus Deus, the Rambam gives you science lessons. I'll just give you an example. In Hilchus Deus, he gives you a diet. You know, stay away from these kind of foods and eat these kind of foods, and, you know, so on and so forth. That's for a diet book. It's not for a Torah. And Ram always held, you're wrong. It's for a Torah. And these guys in Spanish friends said, what are you writing that for? And they weren't wrong. I think here they were right. I'll tell you what I mean. The Ramam says part of the Torah. Well, that's the, sure, the medicine of the 12th century, the medicine of the 13th century. Are you telling me that's part of the Torah? You see what I'm saying? They really, if you strip it down, were making the sophisticated criticism of him. You're tying the timely to the timeless, and don't do that. Because the timely always becomes a corpse. By definition, anything that's timely, sooner or later, becomes out of style, out of fashion. The science of the realm of time was not destined to last. So it's a good thing today. I don't think anybody, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think anybody's going around saying like this. Oh, gee, my doctor told me I've got to get a diet. Let me read the Rambo. You're going to get a diet book or something like that, right? Okay? Don't you agree? Now, this group of Frum critics were not morons, and they were not right-wing nuts. Let me be clear about this. They were thoughtful, and they were genuinely bothered by the phenomenon that a Gadol B'Yisrael, a Gadol Adralik Rambam, who by all accounts was from and Esadik, should write such seemingly non-Frum things and seem disrespectful of Tanoim, who believed in astrology and things like that. The critics didn't know what to do about this. Now, had the Rambam been some loser or some B-level rabbi, it wouldn't have mattered. But he was A-level, and he could not be ignored. And then things got worse. Because Shmuel ben Ibn Tibbin and Yudal Kharizi translated the guide for Perplex. Ooh, boy. Everything I told you was what they had problems with with the Rambam was writing the Mishnah Torah. Can you imagine what happens when they started reading <laughs> the guide for the Perplex? Okay? Remember, Rambam himself wrote in the introduction of his book that yeshiva types should stay away from the book. I showed you that last week. Instead of guiding them out of perplexity, they were perplexed up. Right? The Ramah says that. If you're a person and you're only learning, don't read this book. Remember, the translations were commi commissioned 
by an atypical elite. Okay? In the land of Yeah, Rabbi Yonis HaKohen, Rabbi Meshulam, Gizu Gedolim, who were also interested in science and sophistication. You know, during the Madrega, you might, you might say, that's not typical of the, uh, of the people at that time. Okay? But as is the case with printed matter and nowadays on the email and the internet, once it's out, you simply have to be prepared for the fact that everyone will read it, particularly those who you do not want to read it. Which is, of course, what happened. Now, if you're from the Team A, the pro-Maimonidean team, you love the guy for the perplex. It's Gavaldi. When he says God doesn't really sneeze, and God doesn't really walk up, come up and down to watch what's happening in the dome, and a hundred other things like that. You think it's great. But if you're from the Team B, and you were already having issues with Maimonides, with what he wrote in the Mishnah Torah, and you now read the guide, especially the second part of the guide, where Maimonides basically says, you cannot be a Frum Jew if you do not know the 26 philosophical and mathematical propositions employed by the philosophers to prove the existence of God. You read that, you can't help freak out. Who knows this? Beginning of part two, proposition one, the existence of an infinite magnitude is impossible. Proposition two, the coexistence of an infinite number of finite magnitudes, magnitudes is impossible. Proposition three, the existence of an infinite number of causes and effects is impossible, even if they're not magnitudes. If, for example, the intelligence were the cause of the second, the second is the cause of the third, the third is the cause of the fourth, the series cannot be continued infinitum. Four categories are subject to change. Blah, 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 blah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and yet you're telling me, oh, you can't be affirmed to your feelings. Really? Really? Are you nuts? Right? Things which are changeable at the same time divisible. Hence we think that moves is divisible and consequently corporeal. But that which is indivisible cannot move and therefore cannot be corporeal. Yeah, everybody knows that, right? <laughs> you see? So, it's going crazy. Let alone other parts of the guide for reflex, which are talk problematic, like his Tom Mayhem mitzvot, which are based on historical relativism. That's the famous part where he says, well, why does it say you can't eat ham? Because it's actually bad for you, your digestion or something. You know, it's unhealthy food. Really? And why do they have carbonates? Because in the old days, everybody was superstitious and they needed carbonates. Really? That's the reason? Why do they have a, a, a shotness? Because the Egyptian priests used to uh, wear a shotness, therefore the trust you can't do it. That's the reason? You understand? With this extreme historical relativism, there's a major turnoff to the from, or rejection of all God's attributes. So God does not have goodness? God does not have power? Really? I know what he means, but you hear what I'm saying? Go tell somebody. God does not have power. No, the Ramah means like this. He created power. So he can't have power. God does not have power? Okay? Or tell me the prophecy is all dream. The Ramah holds other than Moshe Rabbeinu. Whenever you see a prophecy, it happened in a dream. So Bilaam didn't really talk to the donkey. It was in a dream. I mean, there's significance that it was in a prophetic dream. It never really happened. Yaakov never really actually physically wrestled with an angel. It was all in a dream. Again, it's significant because it happened in a prophetic dream. It's not like your dream and my dream because we had a bad pizza, you know. You had a bad dream. It's a significance, but it never happened. Avram, according to this, never really uh, physically talked to the, to the angels. I'm not even sure what he does. Maybe Lot never saw the two angels walk into Sodom and all. Maybe it's all a dream, a prophetic dream. Tell this to regular people who are not grounded already and are not proposed to think of Taramata, 
who were already full of shots and posting. Talk to everybody else. This and more was disturbing and definitely confusing to what I would call Team B. They wouldn't accept that they shouldn't read the guide because Rambam told them not to. Why? Why can't we read it? Are B'nai Torah and B'nai Yeshiva dummies? Is the secular education really better and higher than the yeshiva education? Or worse, are you saying that without a secular education, you cannot understand the Torah and Chazal? To accept such a set of ideas would be to diss all the great rabbinic authorities of the past and present who did not have an Aristotelian education. Carried to its logical conclusion, there's basically a grand total of one person and one person alone who knows how to read and understand Tanakh and Yagadatha. Really? Okay, really? I mentioned this all to you, so you get an idea that if you live in that part of the world in Languedoc, you do a slow burn over many years over these issues, especially the younger Yeshiva students. What to do with it? Maybe the mature scholars and Rosh Hashivas, maybe, are able to do Yitam L'chatan V'lochotin. Maybe older and wiser people are able to say like this, Ram was a great man and a gigantic Grecian. He screwed up here and there. A few things he got wrong, but everything else is great. That's not the way young people, teenagers and that type of thing, okay? Uh, the Talmudim will say, he's a kaifer, he's a this, he's a murderer, and you know how kids are, you know how teenagers are, you know it's going to turn into drama, murdered his mother, you know, he shot his father, poisoned his brother, you know, that, they're going to turn into, that's what I heard. What are they going to start hocking at the mikvah, you understand? In the back of the show. Okay, so the stage is set for the blow-up of the 1220s and 1230s, two or three decades after the Rambam's death. And one more factor tonight, the Goyim, the historical context. At this very place in the world, at this time, in the early 1200s, Languedoc was a bloody battlefield, full of massacres and excommunications, mass burnings of thousands of people and things like that. These are Catholics burning the Cathars in Languedoc. There used to be a group called the Albigensians or the Cathars, and they didn't agree with the Catholic Church in fundamental matters of theology. You know, one great, I'm not going to go and critique this set of Christian theology versus that one. But, let it be. but by the way, theologically, they didn't hold Judaism because they actually believe in two gods. Uh, one is the good God and one is the bad God. The good God is the New Testament, the bad God is the Old Testament. But on a day-to-day basis, they were nice to the Jews. All I can tell you is without going into the history of the Church, that the Pope went crazy, and things got a hand, and he sent armies in, or he encouraged armies to come in, and they killed everybody, burned them at the stake, and so whole communities were wiped out. This is a famous story in Bezier, when they come to smash into the town, and they say, which one's a Catholic, which one's a Cathar, and the Archbishop says, just kill them all. God will sort it out in heaven. Are you a Catholic, go to heaven. Are you a Catholic, go to hell. Just kill them all. You see? So it's funny, because the Jews are trying to stay out of that. The Jewish community in Bezier was tackled wiped out because he killed the whole town. But most places, the Jews consider this, I'm not this, I'm not that, don't count me in the world. But if you're Jewish, you're always hocking, aren't you? And what are you hocking? Did you hear that this duke is this, and this prince is this, and the pope is that, and the French army and the Simon de Montfort is coming here? And it was a time of extreme religious passion and violence. And that was yom yom, was going on all the time. Okay? Now, uh, the Catholic Church crushed the heretics and asserted religious orthodoxy with extreme violence. So it was an age, an environment, and an area in the world of religious militancy. As the Jewish communities in Languedoc and Christian Spain divided on Hashkafa matters, 
the old timers were now saying in the communities, hi, before Rambam ever existed, everything was nice. We were one big united community. Jews never seriously quarreled about theology. Look, maybe we didn't get God's nose right or not, you know, but at least everybody went to everybody's bar mitzvah, a good time was had by all. Yiddishkeit was Yiddishkeit, we didn't get all this kind of stuff. And now, right, those days are over. The better is the worse. The ideas in Rambam were like a Pandora's box, introducing principled, principled discord in the place of Achtas. Sooner or later, things were going to explode, and that will be the subject of the next lecture. And I wish you a good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.